This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Two of the title races drop points. At what point do we stop saying, well, Manchester City will win the last 20 games of the season and walk away with it? Crystal Palace's comeback featuring Roy's joyous grin as Phil Foden flattened Jean-Philippe Mateta. Time to take Villa seriously. One point off the top. You don't have to take Martinez versus Mopai seriously if you don't want to. Arsenal make relatively easy work of Brighton. And then there's Liverpool nil, Manchester United nil. I guess you have to credit United, but that was tough. Elsewhere, Sean Dyche dishes his way to victory at his old house. There's more kudos for kudos. Raul Jimenez bum sees red. Chelsea turn a little corner and Spurs stay in touch. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Callum says, elite lineup. William says, the A-team is back. Um, very hard to cast these four in the roles of Hannibal, B.A., Face and Murdoch. But uh, Barry Glendening, welcome. Pity the fool, Max. Pity the fool. Um, Barney Ronay, hello. Hi, everyone. Hello, Johnny Lou. Hi. Um, wow, you sort of sound as... That's really the Barney role, to sound that to sound that upbeat right from the top, Johnny. Was it because you went to Anfield yesterday? No, it's because I woke up nine minutes ago. Oh, okay. Oh well, you can ease yourself in. Got back at got back at one a.m. Um, oh, that's sad. It was, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I woke up at four a.m. UK time yesterday. Set the alarm for four a.m. to get the flight to, from Berlin to London, and then I had I had about fifteen minutes at home. Then got the train to Euston, and you know I was eventually back about one. A.m. So it was it was a twenty one hour day yesterday, um, and I'm, I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy that game, but would I have liked it to have been better? for the 21 hours invested in it. Yes, probably. <laughs> well, we'll get to that eventually. Um, let's just start uh, sending our thoughts to Tom Lockyer. Um, Bournemouth Luton was abandoned when he suffered a cardiac arrest on the pitch. Uh, the latest statement from Luton Town says, uh, while our captain Tom Lockyer remains in hospital following the cardiac arrest he suffered on the pitch at Bournemouth yesterday, we understand that supporters are concerned for him and there's widespread media interest in his condition. Tom is still undergoing tests and scans and is awaiting the results before the next steps for his recovery are determined. We're unable to provide a running commentary on his situation and request that all media please wait for any updates to be released by the club's official channels when the time is right. We all want the very best for Tom, his partner Taylor and the whole Lockyer family and politely ask that his and their privacy is respected at that difficult time, which we'll of course do. Dominic Booth in the paper writing, um, praise is deservedly being dished out to Phil Billing, who was the first to dash over to the stricken Lockyer, and to his teammate Dominic Solanke, who was seen urgently calling for medical support. The speed with which they grasped the severity of the situation was commendable. They played a part in getting Lockyer the help he needed. When the game was abandoned, it was with the full support of the Bournemouth players, staff and supporters. They showed the best of the beautiful game. And, and there's not, Barry, a lot that we can say that, that hasn't been said. I mean, it really reminded us all, I think, of the Christian Eriksen situation. And Tom Lockyer has a, a long journey to, to whether he plays again or, or just back to health. Um, but it was obviously a very traumatic experience for, for you know, everyone who was there. Yeah, um, it reminded us of the Ericsson situation. It reminded us of the more of the, the Lockyer situation at the, the playoffs final last season and various other situations in which um, players haven't been so lucky and, and have lost their lives. But I'm not sure there's a great deal else you can say apart from to, to wish him the very best of luck at, at what will be a 
a very uncertain time for him. Mm, absolutely. And we do that. Um, uh, let's go to matters on the pitch. Um, looking at the top four uh, in order of games that were most to least interesting. So, uh, Johnny, you can wait for a bit on your Anfield experience. Uh, at the Etihad, Man City 2, Crystal Palace 2. I mean, surely the highlight of the weekend, Barney, is Roy Hodgson laughing sort of in Pep's direction after that uh, late penalty is awarded. That really was a very surprising result. Um, obviously, Roy Roy didn't seem that surprised. He seemed quite pleased. But um, I find City's um, sort of dip in form really fascinating. Um, it's um, I've got this theory about them, which is obviously wrong, but is an interesting theory, that there was a bit, a slight kind of um, Robert Johnson going down to the crossroads thing about last season, and that they had this perfectly functioning team. It was just such a brilliant team. Uh, the team that lost to Real Madrid in the Champions League late stages the season before last, playing with false nines, just everything worked perfectly in that team. And in the league, they're incredible. And and signing Haaland, who was exactly the opposite of that, and is basically just a you know a loaded gun to go at the front of the team, was like a deal with the devil. Like the team will continue to function so well that he will just score all the chances it makes and you will win everything for a season. But it's short term because eventually signing a player who doesn't fit your system and not tending to other bits of that system as Guardiola always has every season. He's made the team better in the same way, but it's like, they just said, all right, we just got to win everything. Let's, let's make that deal. And I would like to think just because it's an interesting narrative that this is the kind of payoff in that they, for once he didn't tend towards what he really wants to do, which is create a team full of midfielders playing beautiful frictionless football and instead just said, sorry, we're going to fire the Kalashnikov at this thing and win everything. And that this is the payoff. Um, that beautifully functioned team, functioning team has lost lots of really important players um, who are more important than uh, uh, Gundogan to the way, uh, you know, Gundogan, uh, brilliant midfielders who are more important to the way Guardiola wants to play than Haaland really is. And this is the bit where, um, you know, Mephistopheles knocks on the door and says, we're going to call in that debt. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they probably just win 20 in a row and win the league and win the Champions League again, and it's all fine. But I, as a neutral, there is something about City. The only really interesting thing is when they struggle uh, because then winning is kind of what I expect to happen given the amount of talent and the brilliant management and the way the clubs run. So failure is interesting, even if it's not really failure yet. Um, and yeah, I look forward to that winning run and this aged well. Mm. I mean, I had actually written, Johnny, at what point do we stop glibly saying, well, they'll win 20 in a row after Christmas and win the league? Well, this is, you know, I don't think it's understandable because because of the way that Guardiola tries to get his his teams to peak for the for the spring, basically, for the run-in. And, you know, he wants his teams to, to try and not not sort of, you know, cruise through the first half of the season. But, but this is the point of the season where normally they're still working things out and then things click and... and and, and they go on a run. I, you know, I, I don't. I don't think that's out of the question this time. But there, there is something slightly different about about it this time. There is there is very clearly uh, like a transitional season for City, and and I think Haaland last season papered over a lot of you know that 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 transition because you know he was just so brilliant. Uh, and obviously they didn't have him this time. They had a problem converting shots. They had a, they have a problem kind of basically you know, warding off transitions, and and they you know, they have a problem. You know, defending their own penalty area. These are these are things. I, I feel like Guardiola is kind of 
he's, he, this is a sort of moment he's got to relish. He's got a problem to fix. You know, he's got, you know, he, he's tried, you know, four central defenders and, you know, he's, he's tried Alvarez in this sort of, you know, weird midfield role. Uh, and, and now he's, you know, he's going to have to find a new solution. Um, because yeah, they are, they are not. They're clearly not where they are. They, they were at this time last season. Now they obviously they go out to Saudi Arabia to play the um, the World Club Championship, and and you know there there's a different kind of pressure on them now. As I mentioned to you yesterday, Baz, I really in, enjoyed the the different levels of composure in Phil Foden in his uh, assist for Jack Grealish's goal, which was just so beautiful, and then that just massive hoik at Mateta to give away the penalty. But like that, City had so many chances. To, to, to like either clear the ball or attack in a different way or just put it in Rosette before that penalty was conceded. And I just wonder, you know, like Peppers trained these players so much that they could never do that, even in like the 94th minute of a game. Yeah, it was a very clumsy challenge and it was a definite penalty, even though at first I thought Mateta dived on first view because he did go down quite theatrically, but it was absolutely a penalty. And, you know, his through ball uh, is this perfectly weighted pass around the corner to, to Jack Grealish for the the opening goal in contrast was wonderful and it, it, you know up until that point and, and beyond that point Palace had defended really really well in preventing City from unlocking their defence in that manner but Foden found a way I mean if this was a one-off result you'd go fair enough grand but City have only taken seven points from the past 18 available in their last six games. The only team they've beaten is Luton. Uh, and if memory serves, they, they make quite heavy weather of that. Uh, and I I do think there is a complacency there that people suggested might be there this season after they won the treble last, last time around. And that's I think totally understandable. It's complete human nature. We we have achieved reached the top of the mountain, and uh, we we have no more worlds left to conquer. They may well go on that that winning run people are predicting, but uh, I think they're given recent results. I, I think they're quite lucky. They're they're still as in touch as they are, and and there's no. No need to panic yet. I, I, I'm just loving imagining. Can you imagine Pep's response to being told he was being complacent? It would be that thing where he he just goes wow and just goes quiet <laughs> and probably mutters something to someone next to him, and like it'll be a Jamie Jackson type reaction. I mean that that's the, his ultimate. The idea that he's complacent would just wow, wow, or he's lucky. It would be. The fury would be would be something to behold. He would, he would sarcastically applaud you. He'd go like, "Yes, yes, we are complacent." <laughs> yeah, that's right. He'd smile and agree, but he his anger, his incandescent rage, would be a sight to behold. But Crystal Palace, uh, one of the reasons I think the Premier League is a good league, I really like them as a team because they they really have hopes of achieving much beyond finishing tenth, but they're really full of vigour and they will punish you if you are below your level. Like they have some really good players. I mean, it's a really good league this year, I think. There's some really high-level teams. And the fact that if you are slightly below your levels, Palace will take absolute joy in ripping into you and killing a two-goal lead. It's, it's one of the reasons why the league is a good product, which is the best kind of product there is. Yeah, and they did it without Eze and, and like fair play, Eliso's coolness 
uh, when he, the way he took that penalty was great. And like the just doing it with the you know the way they where City put the away fans, it was like the perfect. He was like, I'll put the penalty there because then I can run that way and celebrate with my people. And I thought it was brilliant. Um, City dropped points. Then Villa didn't drop points. Looked like they might. Um, thing about champions, Johnny, is they find a way because. Brentford will feel like they should have got something from this game. But at the end, a big sort of, it all, it sort of, it became this sort of, someone else tweeted, I think, you know, the battle of the G-Tech doesn't quite sound, it doesn't really have a <laughs> ring to it, does it? But like, this ended in like an absolutely sort of brilliant, rage-filled uh, finale. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if they're doing the kind of the, the behind-the-scenes documentary, uh, this is kind of the, this is the game where they, you know, they start to believe they've been they've been dragged through the mill. You know, it's tetchy, it's ill-tempered, it's it's you know a little bit pantomime to be honest. But they, you know, there was a real kind of um, like a, a real alpha energy coming from them. You know, you see how how Watkins um, celebrates that that winning goal, and obviously there's some there's been some apparently there was some uh, Brentford fan making like some personal comments about his family or something like that. But you know, and and they use that, and they, you know, they they they've played. You know, really like they played really scintillating football to beat Manchester City, and then they've kind of really dug in against Arsenal, and they, and they've won this one in a kind of different, different way again. You know, coming back from behind and, and showing real kind of resilience. Um, yeah, they, because they haven't been that great on the road this season. Uh, they've obviously picked up all of their points at home, and you know they've ground out some results uh, away from home, and, and and this is what they've done again. You know, they had, I guess, a little bit of luck with the with the red card, and and they yeah they just sort of they ground it out and that is um yeah like you say it, it, i mean I'm, I'm not saying it's what champions do but it's it's definitely a team that has more layers and keys and, and tones than maybe we thought even like a month ago neil says after adjusting very well to the bright lights of london has ben me now finally been distracted by the christmas lights that have been added on top of the bright lights uh, I, I mean it was a red card thomas frank didn't think it was barry but it was and it to- it did totally change the game because up until that point brentford had been so organized they had the three center backs there so me obviously got sent off i, I thought it was quite strange actually that the ref david coo even needed to go to his monitor because he he had a great sort of ringside seat for that challenge but it was unquestionably a, a red card and was duly ungraded and then it all started to go pear shape for Brentford who had probably done enough to win the game by that point because they uh, they they missed some decent chances and and uh, Emil Emmy Martinez made a couple of good saves but uh, that's what totally switched the momentum of the game and Villa duly came back to win um, bought a goal from a corner and uh, yeah, Moreno's header. He, he's stealing in unmarked at the back post, and and in the end, it is a very good win. They have ground out, uh, but I suspect Brentford will be. They will see that as points, silly points dropped. Yeah, um, I mean, Leon Bailey almost scored an absolutely sensational own goal, <laughs> yeah. which which began Barney the sort of Neil Mopay versus Emmy Martinez, uh, panto, which was totally ridiculous and yet quite mesmerising. Yeah, it was. Um, it was like really quite well acted professional wrestling <laughs> uh, when they fought the, an incredible forearm smash and they kind of somersault to the floor. Um, yeah, I mean that that was. I heard uh, Emery talking about that this morning and he was very 
I felt okay about it having heard him talking, mainly because he said the word behavior. And it just sounds fine when you describe, our behavior has been okay. And I, I think he, um, the thing is that his team, they do play with incredible intensity. It's the perfect club for him. And he's such a good manager and he's so obsessed with it. And he's got a group of players there. Players always act out of self-interest. And at Villa, he has a group of players who know he is probably slightly at their level or above. And if they just follow what he says, he'll make them better and they'll win and it'll be the best season of their careers. So they will do whatever he says. And he meticulously kind of, he's one of those manager drills, every movement in every starting position, everything he wants them to do. And um, I loved watching his excitement as well in this game. I've been trying to work out with him what it is he reminds me of. And there's like, we know there's, there's definitely a bit of partridge. There's a bit of, Nosferatu but this time as he was jumping up and down after Villa scored I realized there's Barrymore too there's a Barrymore <laughs> element there if you if you were to fuse Partridge Dracula Barrymore you'd pretty much end up with with a kind of Emery uh physical type uh, but he's great. I love him as a manager. I loved him ever since the UEFA League, uh, Europa League final in Basel, where uh, Sevilla played Liverpool, and he went out on the pitch at half time and did his big kind of like telling everyone off. And they came out and scored five minutes later and just totally dominated the second half. And and I thought all the stuff about him not being able to inspire players at, players at Arsenal was, you know, clearly misguided. Um, and yeah, it's great for him. I think he's he's a kind of magnetic presence. I mean, absolutely, I'm there for for bringing back Strike It Lucky, but hosted by Unai Emery. I would, I would thoroughly enjoy enjoy that. Uh, the sending off of camera of right, Barry. Is, he's the guy who's trying to politely help Neil Mope up to begin with, right after Martinez has sort of slightly nudged him and then tried to pull his shirt over his head. And it's all Martinez's fault. Right? Everybody just falls for this. I fall for it. Like all of it. You know what he's doing. He's just trying to play the clock down. He does it brilliantly. And he sort of walks away with this fire behind him going, well, nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah, it's just sort of like uh, Michelle Moan, but he gets away with it. <laughs> like, so he nudges Mope in the back. Mope flings himself to the ground. And then Martinez, it in trying to remove or to pick Mope up, it was like watching a copper try to remove a Just Stop Oil <laughs> protester who's like lying in the middle of the road and just makes their body completely limp so you're trying to lift a dead weight. Um, I thought Bubakar Camera was extremely hard done by. I appreciate he did raise a hand to someone's face, but he sort of gently caress their chin and when you compare that to say yeah. the elbow Vladimir Sufal smashed into um, 100% Bellegarde's face in the the West Ham Wolves game you know or even Lascelles right even Lascelles on him yeah, right yeah. you sort of go one's a red card and yeah. the other two aren't that does, it doesn't really tot up does it but um no I'm I'm there for it it's a silly red card for camera to get and he'll be missed when he's serving that ban Arsenal 2, Brighton nil. Barney, you were at this game. Arteta said it was an incredible performance. Do you agree? No. Um, I was surprised at how pleased everyone was at the end. But then on the other hand, Arsenal had, uh, he said, six players who were suffering with illness. Um, And they've now got a relatively easy, not easy, there's not that many games over the festive period. I think they've got three in the next month. Um, And obviously Brighton beat them 3-0 in April, and that was a really traumatic game at the same stadium. 
Actually, Roberto De Zerbi was very complimentary of how Arsenal played afterwards and said they were brilliant. We lost every duel. Uh, we couldn't play our game. They they were much, much better than in April. And um, I did sort of start to believe in Arsenal um, uh, by the end of this game. They, they seemed to me the most controlled, organised, non-flaky, not, not on a big adrenal wave. They're just playing really well. Um, they're a weird team because there's always a lot of stuff about... Um, we're supposed to say they're too emotional. They were quite emotional at the end. People were smiling. Uh, there were hugs, and uh, that made me feel bad. But it's they're, when they're playing, they're actually quite a robotic team. It's as though by being so controlled, they really play this system-based way. You know, to the extent that uh, at one point Brighton's fullbacks were James Milner and Hinshelwood, who's a midfielder. Um, because they have so many injuries, they've had another one now. They're really struggling with the squad and Deserby didn't make any excuses about it, but it's a problem for them because they're playing a lot of games. And Arsenal didn't do that thing, the sort of Harry Rudnap thing of go, go and sit on that fullback, go and kill him, you know, get the ball to Bukayo. It was just, they just kept playing the same patterns. They have a way they play. And I wonder, um, obviously there's no nothing to base this on, but whether the kind of leaping around at the end and seeming incredibly pleased with every victory is because it's a real act of will to play that way for professional footballers. And that's how they want to win the league this year. The defence is much better. I had an interesting stat that teams, you basically have to concede less than a goal a game to win the league. That's just the numbers over the last 25 years. And last season, they were 1.2 goals a game, I think. Whereas this season, they're less than a goal a game. I literally do think that Arteta would look at that and think this is this is how we win the league. You know, it may be a causation and correlation thing, but the defence is really good now. Um, Saliba and uh, and Gabriel, um, obviously really good, but the whole team defends really manically, which is probably why they're less expansive and so happy at the end, which is bad. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm convinced. Obviously, you see the shape of the play much better when you're in the ground. Watching Rice and Erdegaard, right? Because I just think they, they're, they're such different players, but to have them both in the same midfield, there was that one pass with the outside of, of Erdegaard's left foot that was just totally ridiculous. Mm, I was right behind that. There was a gasp. Yeah, because the, it's sort of like this backspin, there's everything on that. And I think Martinelli put it over. But then the way Rice carries It was the like ball, crown green bowls, you know, when they bend <laughs> yeah, the ball in yeah, at the last second and it kind of rolls, <laughs> it kind of goes over and leans on the jack. It reminded yeah. me very much of that. And and Rice as well is perfect. Rice is, you know, really a good player. I was a bit of a Rice unbeliever for a while, just because there's so much talk about him and his stride. He's got an elegant stride, and sports writers love elegant strides. Mm. I think about his stride <laughs> a lot. But that is a really good midfield. It's interesting you say that, actually, because yesterday was was definitely the day I stopped being a Rice sceptic. He was, he was superb. Yeah. Um, Lewis Dunk had a fun minute where he made one brilliant block and then he made another brilliant block with his undercarriage and then when most men would have been still absolutely prone on the ground he he, he cleared one off the line about a minute later and it's just such a great and because he's he's more than that like I always had him as that kind of player but he's also like a really brilliant ball playing centre back as well but I enjoyed he's a really good player I don't understand why he doesn't just start for England every game why there's a problem um, maybe that will change and you'd play him with stones. Were they both right side? I mean, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to. Oh, not the old. Does it? I don't really buy all that right sided, left side. I mean, come on. 
I mean, play, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold can play in midfield. You yeah. Switch Kieran Trippier. I mean, he's very two-footed, but I think good players can probably yeah. manage that. Uh, worth mentioning Brighton's, you know, they, they'd come off that win over Marseille, which, you know, Jao Pedro scoring really late on and brilliant scenes at the Amex. I think they're probably still playing Freed from Desire and the crowd are still there just celebrating. It was a, like, it's been wonderful, their European, first ever European adventure so far. Arteta was on the touchline, Johnny. He escaped a ban um, uh, after he said the referee during the Newcastle game was embarrassing and a disgrace. Um, an independent regulatory commission dismissed the charges as not proven. In its written reasons, it was revealed that Arteta's evidence claimed the word disgrace has a very similar spelling and pronunciation to the Spanish desgracia. The Spanish word has connotations of misfortune, tragedy, or bad luck, rather than the connotation... No, it, it actually means thank you, <laughs> in Spanish. <laughs> It's just a cultural <laughs> difference, semantic. Yeah, yes, it means players make mistakes, refs make mistakes. That's just the way. That's just the way life goes. Um, uh, while the English meaning may lead to interpretations of abuse or insult, this was not the intended meaning. Um, do you? I mean, Arteta's been living living in England for like twenty yes. years, and he didn't he didn't say disgrace. He said disgrace. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was a, I thought that was a very inventive, you know, an, an, an inventiveness and uh, you know problem solving that I, I thought was actually redolent of Arteta's teams. Did Arteta himself say that? No, I didn't mean disgrace. I meant disgrace. <laughs> Just you know, he was clarifying. Uh, he said, "I've been in England long enough. I know what I'm saying, and I'm saying disgrace." Do you think he used the um? Yeah, the Lorraine Kelly kind of. I'm not Mikel Arteta. I'm someone playing the role of Mikel Arteta in the, in when I'm doing those post match interviews. So that's it's not actually Mikel Arteta yeah. there. It's just that's what people expect Mikel a Mikel Arteta to do, and so that's why. Anyway, he got away with it. So you know, fair enough. Uh, and that'll do for part one. Part two. Uh, Johnny gets to wax lyrical about Liverpool nil, Manchester United nil. <laughs> Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Baz says, remember when there was an early Saturday kickoff for Liverpool Man United? It was so bad, the pod completely forgot to mention it. Can you do it deliberately this time? Damien says, Liverpool Man United, a great advert for literally any other sport. Um, uh, Johnny, you were there. How was it? Sorry, could I, before uh, Johnny cuts loose, could I just, I think the game we completely forgot to mention was between Spurs and Manchester United, not ah, okay. Liverpool Manchester United. Right. It was before my time. Of course, yeah. we wouldn't make such mistakes. It didn't happen on a number of levels. <laughs> I'm with you. Anyway, uh, Johnny, that saved you another 20 seconds about having to talk about this game. But now your moment has come. Yeah, can't, can't be can't be swerved any longer. Uh, well, no. you know, United did a job on them, basically, right? They came they came to Anfield. They'd, be, they'd been beaten seven nil last season. They didn't want it. They didn't want that to happen again. And they basically they approached it like a like a, a League One side. In, in the FA Cup that trying to try to you know sit tight and get a money spinning replay you know they, they really want to get their name in the hat for Monday's draw uh and you know th- they had a couple of um couple of couple of counter attacks near the end you know and and Jason Mohammed's on you know on the BBC red button going like they're still dreaming Manchester United that you know they're still dreaming of, the, of this of a famous victory um and, you know and, and that is kind of <laughs> what they needed to do I, th- I thought Liverpool were really really not 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 bad in that you know, in in the sense that Liverpool are never really like truly bad. They just they were just slightly lacking in ideas. They just weren't quite cute enough. They had thirty four shots 
And I can't remember more than about three of them. A lot of headers, a lot of shots from distance, very, very few like good chances. And that I think is a testament to how United just, you know, about, about 20 minutes in, they're like, well, we're not going to press you anymore. We're just going to sit here and watch you try and try and break us down. And because United are, are you know, you know, beyond all appearances, actually quite a decent football team when they want to be and quite well coached, you know, that they they managed to hold out. Liverpool couldn't break them down. And so, you know, there was this huge torrent of noise at, at the start when, you know, Liverpool sort of go at them and there's this huge torrent of noise at the end when Liverpool are going in them. But, but in between, there's there's actually, there's, there's not a huge amount happening. There's lots of, you know, fouls. Lots, there were lots and lots of throw-ins. I, I, feel, I feel like this game was about 38% throw-in. I did see you write that, that in a way it showed a, a kind of humility from Manchester United to accept where they currently are and go, well, this is what we need to do. And anybody getting keeping a clean sheet at Anfield and coming away with a point will be pretty happy, really. This kind of applies more to things like losing to Bournemouth. It is. It is. It, it needs to stop being a like a, a disgracia for um, United to to be losing to teams like Bournemouth or Crystal Palace uh, or, or struggling to beat Fulham because this is this is kind of where they are. This is where they've been at for you know most of the last seven or eight years. And this whole idea that this is this is Manchester United and you know they they this is one of the the, the legendary clubs of England and they, they should be swatting everyone aside and playing you know sparkling football and whenever they lose to somebody who they perceive as as lesser to them that it's 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 some massive crisis that requires immediate vengeance and, and bloodletting uh, I think that, that that's the part they need to get themselves over they are a, a flawed you know, maybe improving side that just needs a little bit of time. And, and that that's that's kind of what I try to get at. You know, it's, they are they are a limited side, you know, in a, in the throes of a massive injury crisis as well. And not everything needs to be some, you know, disaster or, or some, some catastrophe every week. Barry, what did you make of Diogo Dalot's red card? That double descent. At what point does, does descent end and then descent begin again? Um, you know, was there enough of a of, of a pause of dissenting Dallo between the first thrust of the arm and the second one? Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> if if we are at the point where we're discussing phases of dissent, I suppose it speaks volumes about uh <laughs> When it's that late in the game, it speaks volumes of what we've just seen unfold. Uh, yeah, I, I, I presume he's supposed to complain about the throwing not going his way mm-hmm. when it should have, and then announce that he has finished complaining and then get booked and then start complaining again. There, There definitely needs to be a a moment of serenity between the initial descent and the the follow-up descent, in my opinion, for it to qualify as double descent. Yeah. I mean, you can't, we can't spend a lot of time making serious earnest points about, you know, respecting referees and then say, oh, come on, Michael Oliver, just tell him to calm down. And I wonder if there should be mitigating circumstances if, Clearly, you have been wronged, right? Like it's sort of the Decanio and Allcock moment, isn't it? It's like I can't remember actually if, Deca- if that was yeah. the throw for Decanio, but like he's definitely in the right, even if he's wrong. Well, he, it was also late in the game. He'd sprinted back. He'd done really quite a good bit of defending, and you know, at that point, your your legs are 
aching and burning with acid and you're just desperate to and that that's when it really hurts for someone to say no you didn't do that but i think one of the problems is the default gesture now for unhappy footballers has become the violent punch of the air um, that kind of haymaker which is a really upsetting gesture and seems to be the kind of thing people go i think it would be nice to reintroduce the the small italianate mm, begging yeah, gesture good. back in <laughs> Because that that's not yeah. offensive, yeah, right. but it's it, it says you're an idiot. I did, you're wrong. It says please. It's imploring, and it also says it's quite threatening. It says I might <laughs> yeah. kill you, but without really True. saying it. And you don't. You wouldn't get booked for doing the small begging gesture with two hands together. No, and actually, you're more likely to just it, to be one continuous act. So then there wouldn't be the double. To say, it would just be a single. Well, I think that the punctuation in that situation is the booking, isn't it? I mean, that's what Michael Oliver yeah. would say. Yeah. If I, you carried on doing a small begging gesture after you'd been booked, that might count as two acts, a second phase of dissent. But I mean, it is ridiculous. If if it goes to a tribunal, if you've done the small begging gesture, you could argue that in Thailand. It's very mannerly, say, if you're handing over a credit card. Right. You, you hand it both hands, you hold it and hand it. Right. And then, so oh, you I could see. Say you've, it's been completely misinterpreted. Right. You were actually being yeah. incredibly mannerly, not dissenting at all. But, but yeah, it, it was definitely worth it for the argument between Mike Dean and Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher <laughs> over... I missed that, Jesus sadly. Yeah, SC says, who would win in a 100-metre race, Barry or Sofian Amrabat? Um, <laughs> uh, it's an interesting player, Amrabat. I, I, he feels very limited to me, Johnny, but maybe I'm doing him a, di- a disservice. Uh, you know, it's early in his Premier League career. It takes time for people to sort of get used to the pace of the league and other cliches. There may be some good caveats there. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't look quick enough. He doesn't... I mean, and, and pace is not something that... That's not a killer, you know. Loads of players in his position succeed without without lightning pace. It's also a kind of a lack of sharpness. He, he seems to be a player who's always like reacting to things. You know, you, they say about the great midfielders that they can they can anticipate where the ball is going to be or where they need to be. Amrabat seems like a guy who's constantly there's a little voice in his head going, "Oh shit, I need to be over there now," and so we'll scurry off and and try and win a throw or, or, or put a tackle in. Um, and it's, it's just this this series of of constant alarm bells. And and then he doesn't have the pace. United have been have been after him for a long time. They've clearly seen things in in Amrabat that they like. Uh, and I think when United have a slightly more settled side and a slightly more settled setup. Um, he might look better in it, but at, at the moment, I think you know he was. I, I was uh, the Chelsea game. He was basically a one-man midfield because McTominay was basically gallivanting off up with a front four, and, and I thought he played really well as a one-man midfield. Um, but yeah, he, he is trying to put out fires at the moment, and he's not. He doesn't really have any water. He has the in that situation. He has the bald premium in that he's very visible. It's like a blonde player. You, you his head sort of you see him, you notice him. Uh, I'm thinking Gravison. Sure. You know, you, Steve you Agnew, Lombardo. Yes. Pate. Do, but speaking of blonde players, I mean, Rasmus Hoyland is blonde and quite noticeable. And I, uh, right, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer on Match of the Day, Barney, were saying that he has to score that chance. You know, that is the whole point of these type of games. You have a striker, you get one moment and you've spent the whole time holding the ball up and winning free kicks and having a tough old time. He's yet to score in the Premier League. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I, I 
I remember watching Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, and they were both absolutely brilliant players. Uh, I love them both, um, but they didn't score every single chance, and nobody does. Uh, but I, I don't know. I think Hoyland um, is a classic um, player from this phase of Man United. I actually think he's got loads of promise. I mean, do you remember the finish in the Champions League where he sprinted 40 yards and then was really calm and just dinked it over the goalie? I, I mean, obviously, he's just really young. He shouldn't be playing every game. He's played millions of games. If he was at Man City and he was back up to Haaland, um, we'd be saying, wow, what a brilliant signing and he's going to be great. I'm worried that they're going to break him because there's just too many, the demands are too big. It's a, a weird signing for too much money to be your only striker. I also worry about Kobe Mainu, who I think is really good, mm. but he's just going to play too many games now. There's going to be too much expectation. There are going to be a lot of games like that where you're kind of playing alongside Amrabat and fighting. And uh, it's just, <laughs> it's kind of this the meat grinder, isn't it? You throw these humans into it and they get pulped. And I, I, I kind of feel like Hoyland should have gone somewhere else. <laughs> Which you probably could say for quite a lot of players who have ended up at Manchester United. Let's go to Burnley. Uh, they lost 2-0 at home to Everton. Uh, Jan Hoppy says, is Sean Dyche rated? Simon, are, are Everton back in the race for the Everton Cup? Seven points clear of the relegation zone now, Baz. They won their fourth consecutive Premier League game. Without the deduction, they'd be level with Brighton. Four clean sheets in a row. They haven't done that since David Moyes was in charge 20-odd years ago. It is incredibly impressive. Yeah, it, it is impressive. I'm, I'm not sure how incredible beating Burnley is. Okay. Well, I'll take it. I, 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 no, that's, Most people I mean, have I'm done just, it. You know, as, a, as a collective. <laughs> yeah, true. As a, as a, not just specifically this moment, but just like since the deduction, then they lost Man United 3-0, didn't they? Even though they played quite well. Then to go on this run, I would say is I'm sticking with incredibly impressive, but you can, you, you know, you can accuse me of hyperbole if you will. It is incredibly impressive by the standards we have come to expect from Everton, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I, I am going to stick firm on my um, view that beating Burnley is quite you know straightforward job for most teams. Uh, whether it's Turf Moor or not, obviously, Sean Dyche. Turf Moor is a place he, he knows well. He was welcomed back by the crowd and then proceeded to do a kind of a Sean Dyche's Burnley on Burnley, on Vincent Company's Burnley. The, the two goals were very Dyche-ian, one from a corner, uh, one from a free kick for, taken from deep by, by Jordan Pickford. And uh, Everton have now put this 10-point deduction firmly behind them. They're two points up. Uh a lot of people thought they would, you know, getting this deduction would galvanise them and it appears to have done so. Well, no, can, yeah. Can I suggest that the worst thing that could possibly happen to Everton now is that they appeal the 10 points and get them back because I think they'd then be relegated. <laughs> the, 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 the sheer rage power of losing those 10 points. They, they would finish lower in the league if they got those 10 That's points back. Without that, they now have a point. They have a purpose. They have a story. They have a mission. They have energy. Take take another ten away, and they're going to finish in the Champions League spots. <laughs> Weird thing is, after that terrible start, like Everton's squad actually is, it's set up perfectly for a Dyche team. You know, you've got these direct wingers who are actually very talented in McNeil and Harrison. A really good centre forward when he's fit. 
as Baz mentioned, a goalkeeper that can ping a really good free kick from 70 yards. Like, it, it, it really fits with what Sean Dyche wants to do to a football team. Yeah, no, no, I, I, think, it's, I think it's true. And I, I think that the results in the, like the first five or six games didn't really do justice yes, to if you like. the way they were played. They, they looked terrible. No, sorry, they, 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 they were, the results were terrible, but they, they looked actually okay. And, you know, you have to remember that they've got to, they've got to this position basically without a regular fit striker. I mean, Calvert-Lewin is the kind of guy who plays six games. You know, they, they've been easing him back in. He's, he's not been playing 90 minutes. Um, and they've, had, they've, they've basically been, you know, playing without a reliable guy up top, which is, which is what Sean Dyche teams are, are, are pretty much based on. Uh, and so they, they've been relying on on Ducouré in this in this you know flying marauding number ten role, which is you know very different to kind of the, the, the midfield roles he was playing earlier in his career. And that's you know that's Dyche innovating. That's that's a that's a great idea um, because you know Everton don't they don't have a great squad. You know they've got like a fifty one year old Ashley Young and and you know they they have. You know, they have some some decent players in, in defence, but this is not a team brimming in, in adventure. It's not a classic Everton squad. You're not going to look at this in, in 10 years' time and go, what, what a team that was, by the way. You know, Mikolinka, what a player he was, by the way. James Garner, what a player he was, by the way. Uh, they are, you know, to, to a large extent, they are yeoman players and they're playing, you know, kind of yeoman football at the moment, but uh, it's working. This is, this is what Dyche does. Like, he is he is underrated because he, 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 he gets, you know, he, he creates teams. He, you know, we, we talk about coaches like making players better, or you know, but and he does make players better. But he ultimately creates really good functioning collectives that work like eleven guys working as one. And I, I think that's kind of yeah, that is that is an underrated skill. Newcastle three, Fulham nil. Ted says, could Barry have done that header by header? I mean, being on the receiving end of a flying ass to the face. Um, Brian, is there a Schumacher scale to go with the Sinclair spectrum? What score does Raúl Jiménez tackle get? It was a silly thing to do, Barry, and a bit of a shame because. It would have been really interesting to see how on-fire, goal-happy Fulham would have done against this weary Newcastle team, but we didn't really get the chance to see it. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle came into this game on the back of three consecutive defeats against Everton, Spurs, Milan. Fulham came in on the back of two extremely unlikely 5-0 wins. And yet, I was fairly certain Newcastle would win. Obviously, the sending off hugely uh, increased their uh, made, made the job a lot easier for them and we, we can only speculate as to what would happen if an inform Raul Jimenez hadn't lost his mind after uh, he was clearly still uh, upset about seeing uh, Lascelles elbow into his face go unpunished and, and took it out on Sean Longstaff absolute red card and Fulham ended up well beaten um, and for Marco Silva to go on a big long rant about the refereeing performance after the game, I thought was really poor from him. Yeah, and also tricky. I'm not sure if there are any words in Marco Silva's uh, furious rant that could be mistranslated, uh, which might be an issue for him. But yeah, it was it was a slightly ludicrous uh, rant at the time. Um, Jamie says, seeing as you almost forgot to sing Lewis Miley's praises after the last part. How old does it make you feel that Miley was born two weeks after Alan Shearer scored his final goal for Newcastle, uh, born on the 1st of May, 2006? Um, yeah, it sort of does look like he, someone else tweeted me saying it looks like he needs a chaperone for the interviews. Like Bruno Gimaraes was sort of next to him. I know, Barney, you've spoken before about 
the sort of difficulty of young players and when do you play them and when is too young and when is a child a child. I think it's quite an interesting point that I don't really hear anyone else bring up. I'm sort of thinking about that with, you know, Barcelona, I think, had a 16-year-old playing very well in the in, in midweek. Uh, that thing about Alan Shearer was doing, that to me, that doesn't, I, I don't really get that. It feels like an absolute lifetime ago that Alan Shearer was playing football to me. I can't, I can't even... It, it feels exactly 17 years ago. Yeah, it feels like a really long time ago and I can't even remember what happened last season. So that's fine. Lewis Miley is a really good player, um, clearly. Um, and it's nice that uh, he's a local kid and all that kind of stuff. And clearly they're producing a lot of players there. We're all very critical of elements of Newcastle's ownership, which we have to pretend is owned by a fund when in fact it's essentially been nationalised by a overseas state. Um, but the sort of paradox of football is that it will keep producing beautiful things like a 17-year-old who's clearly a very nice lad, who's brilliant footballer coming through playing for his home team. That's really good. And they, they have quite a few local players now. Um, uh, he's an interesting young player because he's basically a really sort of elegant, classy midfielder who makes really good, intelligent runs rather than some physical prodigy who's really quick or strong or whatever. He seems to be prodigiously intelligent in a football yeah, sense. He's a waif, isn't he? He's quite a sort of waify. Well, he's he's actually he's facially very young, but he's quite tall and he's quite physically quite powerful. The the face is misleading. I mean, I have this myself. Right. He's a waify face. People yes, look and course, think yeah. um so young, but actually no, yeah. uh, incredibly. Well, they old. think what a they think what a wavy face, but actually, <laughs> yes, they think you're too. You need a chaperone. You shouldn't be on this show with people like Barry, like uh, gnarled old podcast hands. <laughs> but actually, I'm I'm quite old, and it's fine. But you're like groundskeeper Willie, aren't you? And you rip your shirt off in a rage, and there's the yes. bulging abs of Barry. Yes, Ronnie. that's correct. Yes, um, uh, Fabian Scher, Joel Linton both pulled up injured. Um, so you know uh, they have lots and lots of injuries. I don't know if at any point Eddie Howe should make them run less at training, or it's just a, a fact that footballers are playing too much football. I don't know, uh, and that'll do for part two. Part three will begin at Stamford Bridge. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Tomorrow we're doing our annual Christmas Q&A episode. Um, please send in any questions or just loving Christmas messages to footballweekly at theguardian.com. Me, Barry Wilson, Robin Cowan, and uh, hopefully a part one Sid Lowe cameo for your Christmas podcast. Uh, Chelsea 2, Sheffield United nil. Frontal Lobe says, are Chelsea back? Uh, well, incredibly impressive, Barry, to be, to beat Sheffield United. When you're in Chelsea's position, I think any win's a good win. But this was very, very, very unconvincing, um, and just served only to to show that I think Chelsea signing Cole Palmer in the window, which was a transfer, I think had a lot of us scratching our heads, going, "Hmm, that's a weird one." Uh, what a signing he's turning out to be. He wasn't very effective in the first half. He was playing in the centre as kind of number 10. They moved him out right in the second half. That made all the difference. Yeah, I mean, it was it's a decent win for Chelsea. They possibly could have won by more if Nicholas Jackson was able to stay on side. Uh, Wes Fotheringham had, a, had saved a, a Cole Palmer free kick. And Brogia... Missed an absolute sitter from two or three yards out where he had two-thirds of the goal to aim at and somehow um, 
put it over the bar. But yeah, Sheffield United had no answers for them really in the second half once Cole Palmer went out right and a, a hugely unconvincing win for Chelsea, but a, a welcome one nonetheless, I would say. West Ham 3, Wolves 0. Um, we did mention the Soufal elbow on Bellegarde. I mean, it looked like a red to me, but then I, uh, at the time we didn't mention Gary O'Neill was the opposing manager. So, of course, VAR <laughs> <laughs> wasn't going to help him out with that. And I think Soufal got booked for a sort of, sort of not quite as bad challenge shortly afterwards. Um, and Gary O'Neill got booked for looking as mild-mannered as he generally, sort of dourly disappointed. I think he got a yellow card for that to add to his troubles. But as he said, look, Wolves had more things to worry about today. And, and mainly, Barney, it was Mohamed Kudus who scored two brilliant goals. And actually, I, I said this the other day, West Ham sort of remind me a bit now of, of a big Sam Bolton, where you're not sure if they play great football, but you look at the side and they've got all these really lovely players like Pakatar, Kudus, Bowen. Sort of feels like akin to that kind of a Kocha, Campo, Hierro type, Jokaev type time. Yeah, it's that sort of nice spectacle of a... Uh, kind of what you would think of as a fairly stodgy traditionalist British manager having fun with his young progressive nephews who've introduced him to drill music or whatever. You know, it's kind of a nice a nice thing to see that. It's like when... Rob- have, you, have your kids introduced you to drill music, Barney? <sighs> yeah, I mean, you know, not, not for me. Um, no, it's a bit... It's, it's not for me either. <laughs> so it's a bit noisy. No, yeah. On. But um, no, it was... Um, I mean, Gary O'Neill and VAR is one of the great He's, as we said before, he's basically getting divorced from VAR and they're having a lot of very serious discussions, <laughs> long chats where they're hoping to make. And that, that divorce sadly carries on. This game, West Ham went 2-0 up. I mean, Paqueta was brilliant, Kudus brilliant. But uh, in the second half, for about 10 minutes, well, uh, until... Uh, Sarabia's tap-in was ruled out for offside, correctly ruled out, but there was, wasn't much in it. Wolves were really getting back in the game, and I think if that goal had stood, that game could have finished a lot differently, mm. but it didn't. Then Bowen played the given goal with Piquetta scored, and, and that was it. Yeah, and look, West Ham after that 5-0 defeat of Fulham, uh, you know, they beat Freiburg um, uh, on Thursday, done really well in Europe. And uh, another good win for them. Finally, uh, on Friday night, Tottenham won 2 0 at, at Nottingham Forest. Um, Dejan Kulusevsky is one of the talking points of this game, Johnny, and quite interesting player because he played in the 10 here. And then when Brennan Johnson got injured, he moved wide. And he's quite big and he's six foot three. You know, he's not a Lewis Miley waif. You know, this is a sort of big unit. And there aren't really that many players like that who play in those positions. I love the way he runs, actually. And because I think because of his size, he has, um, you know, what, what, we, what we see with, with a lot of um, left footers on the right wing is that they are going to come and tie it at some point and the deception is when they're going to do it. Um, whereas Kuliseski, he has, he has the strength. He can muscle off a big defender and go around the outside. You, you see it time and again. He goes round, like, round the outside to the byline and just about manages to... To, to, to keep the ball in play. And he, he does that again and again. So so as a defender, you have that kind of, you know, you, you can't you can't show him onto his stronger foot because obviously it'll, it'll go there. And you, you can't show him onto onto the outside either because he can do you down that side. I think he's I think he's a really underrated player, Kulusevsky. He has been this I mean, this season he's been at, at least as as influential uh, as Son or or Richarlison or or, or Brennan Johnson. Um 
and yeah, they 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 have options now. Spurs have have, have options in, in in those positions. You know, um, Son obviously can play on the left. He can play the centre. Kulusevski playing more and more in the centre. They have you know these marauding fullbacks who who pop up in uh, you know weird places around you know the, the edge of the box or wherever. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I I think Spurs have you know they had a little bit of a wobble. They had a bit of a few injuries. They had some you know they had some haters. I think. You know, there was some, there were some bitch ass haters out there who were who were gone in for Spurs. Yeah, on that on that topic, um, how how did they manage to develop these interesting fullbacks who go into interesting positions and the use of cool? Because whenever now, whenever I'm tagged on a tweet which you're tagged on on uh, the the platform known as X, formerly known as the platform known as X, formerly known as Twitter, formerly known as Twitter, people say, does Johnny Lou still hate Ange? What's wrong with him? So what happened there exactly? Was that, were you joking? Well, I mean, yeah, should I, should I clarify this? There was, I did a bit on the, the, the live show, which uh, was, it was a bit, you know, I was like, what, basically, right. I take my writing, I take my, 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 my job, my, my full-time job as a, as, a, as a sports writer for the guy, I take that incredibly seriously. I take my talking, like, not not at all seriously. Mm, like, the very yeah. opposite of seriously. So, you know, I did a bit for the live show. And then Max thought, um, oh, you know what? That went down really well in front of actual people, you know, in a, in a, in a room last night. Why do, you, why, do you, why do you say it to millions of people who, who will then, like, cut and snip it and take it out of context and, and, then, and then post it in bad faith on the internet? That, what, that, that, that would be- it's, not, it's not my fault. Is it? Oh, Max, this is what Max does. This is what Max does. <laughs> oh, hang on. Okay. No, it's a Max thing. He, he he stitches up the rest of us mm. to make him. Well, I don't know if it's just to stitch us up because he finds it amusing, or if it's to make himself look better. Yes, he's but devious. Like, he, yeah. Machiavellian. <laughs> I mean, let, let's talk about the interview he did in the Guardian. What interview did I do so in the So, in, in terms of promoting our book, which is available in all good bookshops, probably still get it in time for Christmas, if you get your order in quickly from the Guardian Bookshop, excellent stocking filler. But it, we had to promote that. And um, Max and I did this sort of Q&A thing for, for the Guardian newspaper, the one of the Saturday supplements in that massive Saturday Guardian you have to... You need a wheelbarrow to get home from the news agents. And Max was asked, or the question was asked, I didn't get to answer this one, but the question was asked, like, if you and Barry changed lives, which of you would quit, raise the white flag and want to go back to your own life first? And then Max said, I think I'm quoting verbatim here, if I lived as Barry for a week, I would die. <laughs> and I'm just thinking like, what? What? I said yeah, I'd be dead what, within what a week. You, what is it, it you just think like, I do? Doing the fiver, having a coffee, like going... Yeah, watching a place <laughs> just, in the country it, or a place in the sunshine <laughs> and then maybe going for a, for a couple of just, pints before dinner. I mean, I, I'm not saying I was just doing a bit... I don't quite see... I, I don't see how me asking Donny on the pod his thoughts of Ange, has turned around into I'm the evil. I, I, I am the devil incarnate. No, but you you portray me as some sort of 
drink-sodden, degenerate junkie that I really could not be further from the truth. I, I understand that it's your job, Max, to create You've content. You've done your job yeah. brilliantly. And to, to create like, this really kind of identity. <laughs> but there are times... There are times when you can go too far. Right. And Barry is a person. Yeah, you know, he's right. a, he is the avatar Barry Glendenning, which is feelings and spirit kind of placed into that form. But he is also a person. Always need to remember that. Just to append this, like a friend of mine uh, said about about um, about Ange. You know, he, he kind of sees into my soul. He said, "This is about cricket, isn't it?" Yes, that's what it's I was going to say. Exactly that. And a sport, so this is this is about cricket. And I spent. I, I, yes. I said, "No, it's not. Obviously, it's not about cricket." I, I thought about it for about an hour. I thought, "Yeah, this is about this is this is about cricket. <laughs> yes. This is about cricket." Mm. I know exactly yeah, what part about. of cricket it's about as well, and I even know the <laughs> I know the names. I know the incidents. Uh, that's what I just assumed. I haven't even heard what you said, but I, I know. Yes, it's true. So, so Johnny, to placate all the Australians who have, quite, in quite large number, approached me recently to say, "What's Johnny? You know, how does he feel about Ange? You, you are like the rest of us, and you love him with every fibre of your soul." I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Not. You're not you're stitching me up again. I'm, I'm. I'm not saying. I'm not saying anything else about Ange Postecoglou. It's. It's already made my life about one percent worse. Like you, you think about think about the quality of you think about all the things that encompass a life and how how, how yeah. you know making that actually one percent is quite a lot. Um, so so you know I, I'm I'm zipping it and and I, I suggest everyone else do the same. Well, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Barney. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. I think it is worth pointing out, by the way, that today yes. for the first time ever, Barney actually recorded a podcast in his mum's basement. Yes, well, it's an act of empathy with our listeners. I feel I'm finally going to be respected, and I'm one of them. Um, I forgot to say, Barry, um, uh, thank you for accepting the Football Supporters Association Award for Podcast of the Year, and thank you for once again forgetting to mention my existence. Um, I had other when, issues to deal with. <laughs> uh, thanks, Johnny. See ya. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. This is The Guardian.